When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, guys, welcome back to Foul Play. I'm joined again today with Gemma. Gemma, today we are recording our 88th episode. Can you believe that? 88. That's, That's amazing. Yeah. We have a lot to talk about, evidently. I know. And we still get more information. We could probably do 88 more. I know. I'm always amazed when people say, well, there's nothing else to talk about. And here we are, number 88. But Gemma, we have some special guests joining us today. And I would like you to introduce them for us. Okay. Hey, everybody. I have the honor today of being with three of my favorite people. I'm not sucking up. Well, a little bit, because we really want them to be on the show. But besides Shane, today our guests are Kim and Mary Beth. And I'm going to ask Kim first to tell us a little bit about herself, anything you want us to know about yourself, Kim. Hi there, my name is Kim, and I am a victim of clergy abuse, which happened about the ages of 9 and 10, and I am now 63, also a survivor of Joseph Maskell, abused by him, and that's about it for now. Mary Beth, take it. Well, my name is Mary Beth, and I will tell you that I am a daughter of a survivor of clergy abuse, also Joseph Maskell. I am also a paralegal for a law firm in Baltimore that is very, very, very involved in advocating, representing, assisting, whatever I possibly can do in the firm as well as the firm itself with survivors of clergy abuse and sexual assault as a minor in general. I've lived in Baltimore my entire life. I have never been probably more than 10 miles out of the West Baltimore region, and I'm okay with that, and I'm glad to be a part of this tonight, and I'm honored that you asked me to join. One of our main topics today that we're going to explore is the Attorney General report that was released in Maryland. Could you go into that for me? Sure. Well, shortly, this is not a coincidence, but shortly after the capers was released and the Attorney General's report from Pennsylvania by Josh Shapiro was released, the Attorney General in Maryland announced that they would be doing an investigation into clergy abuse in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. So for all those who are Keepers fans or who live in Pennsylvania, we owe that to those two entities for pushing this along. So in September of 2018, the Attorney General announced that anybody who had been abused by clergy 
actually in Maryland, even though I found out Maryland is not just the Archdiocese of Baltimore, asked people to come forward and report their abuse. So starting in September of 2018 and continuing for a million years, it felt like folks went forward and I had the opportunity to connect with the Attorney General's criminal investigator, Richard Wolf, who is still in that position. So I hope if you are a survivor of abuse in Maryland, don't let our last program scare you away. You still can report this to the Attorney General. They are now doing a report on the Archdiocese of Washington, which is the western and southwestern part of Maryland and Washington, D.C., and the Archdiocese of Wilmington, which is the eastern shore of Maryland. And they are having those two investigations going on at the same time. What I did was there were so many people that came to me and said, I heard about this. What do I do? And I gave them the contact information for Richard Wool. Some of them asked me to be on the phone with them or to introduce them to him by email, which is fine. And I can still do that for any of you who are listening. And then he would take it from there. A lot of people came forward. Hundreds of people came forward. Thousands of people came forward. And then for the next four years, we thought it would never end. The attorney general took those reports and we started bugging him, like, what are you doing? Why aren't you finishing? Richard kept saying, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But it did take four years. In November of 2022, we heard that the investigation was over, but not over, that people could still report and he was encouraging them to report, but they were going to begin to put this compilation of abuse and abusers together. So in the fall of last year, and I want to thank Mary Beth and her team for facilitating my travel to Annapolis, because you guys know I don't drive, to make sure that I was able to testify also in favor of the Child Victims Act. So the two things happened at one time. The investigation was coming out, the report, and the Child Victims Act was going to be voted on. So in April, the report came out. It is, I don't even remember how many pages. I think it's almost 500 pages. Does not include names of any survivors. So if you're thinking about reporting, you will remain anonymous to the public. It will be documented. And Richard will make sure that your anonymity is safe, but whatever happened to you is important. So the report came out in April. We can post a link to the report on felt play page so you guys can read it. I know you're all going to look at Maskell right away. There's some interesting information there, and there's some implications there that we're going to talk about in a future episode. Hint, hint, a Jesuit intern that you all know from the Keepers. And tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about the impact that the report has had, both from Mary Beth's perspective as the daughter of a survivor and her perspective as a paralegal 
who's on the receiving end of hundreds of calls from people who just don't know what to do. And we're also going to get the perspective of Kim, who is a master survivor, and talk to her about how this impacted her life and how she has decided to move forward. So Shane, I'm going to let you ask the questions to these ladies. There's a couple things that I want to add. The first, the report was 456 pages. It includes 600 children that date back to 1940s. While reading through the report, I noticed that one of the things that it was talking about was, to me, when I read it, it seemed like they were possibly going to only include the names of perpetrators, possibly, that they could link through proof. The 600 children and the amount of abusers that they release in the report, is that just based on the documents that they were able to obtain from the archdiocese and through police records? The 600 is a round number. I'm sure that's the tip of the iceberg. But that would be the number of people who reported abuse of themselves by clergy in the Archdiocese of Baltimore, not the Archdiocese of Washington or the Archdiocese of Wilmington. That would be just the middle of the state. So there's more information that Richard has. Those would be the 600 plus who actually did a formal report, whether it was face-to-face, whether it was by phone. Richard met with people at Panera at their homes. He traveled all over the place, even out of the state, to talk to people who had been abused in the Archdiocese of Baltimore by Archdiocesan clergy. It includes a few lay people. John Mersbacher was one of them who worked in Catholic schools, but the number of perpetrators that are named are because of those reports. So I believe it's 150 some, I've lost track of some of the numbers, who were reported by the 600 individuals who were abused as minors. And I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg. So the number of people reporting resulted in the number of abusers named. And that does not include anybody who facilitated, covered up, uh, I mean, like individuals on a staff, for example, I believe there are a lot of staff members at Keogh who knew about this and some teachers who may have, have uh, participated, but they were not priest clergy. They could have been nuns. They could have been teachers. They could have been secretaries. Anybody who worked in that building who knew about this, the people that I know of went forward and gave their names of anybody the facilitators, the cover-up people, and some of those people have been named in the report, but not all of them. So there's a whole big, really big thousands of people who either facilitated or covered up the abuse in each place where it happened. That was a long way of answering an easy question, but that's what I know. It's 156 that are named in the report, and... All of them are named as clergy, except for a few lay people, but not very many. I think there's two. 
And there are still five people who are redacted. Is that right? There's two. There's two. Okay. Yeah. Number 154 and number 147 in the list are the only two left that are redacted. And, you know, it was newspaper reporters that were able to figure out who that was. The archdiocese was not forthcoming. They were not saying, hey, we're going to let you know who everybody is. So we have some really excellent reporters at the Sun Papers, Lee Sanderlin, and outstanding reporters at the Baltimore Banner, Julie Sharper, and Justin Fenton. And they have been responsible with their teams of young investigative reporters in finding out who the redacted names are. It's like pieces of a puzzle. You get the pieces, but you don't know what it's going to add up to. I know that when the report first came out, there were a lot more redactions. What was the process that got those redactions removed and the the report updated with less redactions? I can probably help a little bit there. The information came out from the Attorney General's office that the report was going to be released. There was no date initially back in November when there was word on the ground that the report was coming but that the report was going to be released and it was going to be released with redactions in the report. So from there, what happened was there were different parties that filed motions with the court to have the redactions removed. Now, the reason the redactions were there was initially was because they were names that came out of the grand jury investigation. And when there's a grand jury investigation, that is, you know, we're talking top secret behind closed doors information. That's information that the public is not privy to. It's not like when you file something in a state court and you go and you look up Mary Beth versus Gemma, and boom, it's going to pop up. When you have a grand jury investigation, that's very sensitive and protected and confidential material. So the argument was from the archdiocese that some of the names that were in the report came from the grand jury investigation, and therefore those names needed to be redacted. At that point, there were redactions in the report that was going to be released. There were motions that were filed by different parties with the Circuit Court of Baltimore City. And that is, by judicial proceeding, that's exactly what needed to happen. You have to get a judge to grant whether or not the information that is being provided in a report is the result of a grand jury and it would tamper with any grand jury investigation. So that's how the process started with getting the redactions unredacted. And it was filed with Baltimore City Circuit Court and it was then the proceedings with the Circuit Court were then sealed, which means Anybody involved, any attorneys, any parties that were involved in these proceedings to get this redaction unredacted, it was a sealed proceeding and basically it was a gag. We had a gag order. We weren't allowed to talk about it. 
We weren't allowed to talk about hearings. We weren't allowed to talk about what was going on, what the judge had ruled. So that all started to take place in December, the very beginning of December. And it wasn't until, I think, April is when the report was released. And it was released with redactions, but not as many redactions as initially were going to be produced in the report. Once the report was released, one of the, I mean, it's a massive report, right? It's 456 pages. As I was reading through it, it's kind of overwhelming just as someone, and, and I'm from Indiana. I am not from Maryland. I'm not a survivor from Maryland. So Kim, I would just like to hear about how the report impacted you as a survivor in Maryland. Oh my gosh. Emotionally. It impacted me in many different ways. I guess, first of all, seeing it on paper, reading through the report, and recognizing some of the parishes, too, that I had formerly belonged to. I Just very anxious. I'm not the best person to put things into words, but it just really took a toll on me like thinking about it nonstop, couldn't think about anything else. And probably more so emotionally. And also feeling ashamed that I had, I I, I don't know, my family being a Catholic, that was very important to them. I explained to Jem and my dad's whole side of the family, I mean, from way back, from a church in Hollandtown. He had a very large family. And I'm embarrassed now to let them know that it's not really embarrassment. They still belong to various Catholic churches in Delaware, in Maryland, in North Carolina. And I just, you know, they'll find out this way. I used to feel like an outcast or like a disappointment. I've gotten past that now, especially, you know, like going through the list and seeing all the other people that went through even worse scenarios than I did. But it's just feeling like I let somebody down on my part. But then since then, feeling like the the archdiocese has really let people down. Go ahead, Mary Beth. I'm going to comment only as a daughter of a survivor. I give a lot of credit to the Attorney General's office and especially Richard Wolf because before the word hit the street that this report was coming out, Richard made sure that he contacted every or close to every person that had reported to him to give them a heads up to say, hey, look, you're going to hear and it's coming out and it's going to be traumatizing and re-traumatizing and difficult. He wanted to prepare survivors that had reported to him. And my mother reported back in 2000 and I don't even remember, I think it was maybe 17, 18 And when you report, from what I've talked to with survivors and with my mother, you know, you're traumatized then when you report. 
And then years go by. And like Gemma said, this took four years to happen. Four years go by or three years go by or even two months go by. And then you are told that this is going to come out and it's going to come out in black and white. So it's no longer a story that you have in your memory and your repressed memory in your head. It's now something that you're reading in black and white. And even if your story isn't the full accounting of what took place, just seeing it for survivors is extremely, extremely emotional, traumatizing, triggering. Any word that you can think of for survivors of this abuse. And not only that, you are reading a document, and I encourage survivors that I talk to, don't read the Attorney General's report. Don't do it. Because you may have been abused by a certain clergy member, but then you have a document that's 460 pages long, and you're reading about other clergy members that in, in, in our lives, we would have never thought that they would be in this report. And here we go, this report comes out, and not only are you triggered and traumatized and re-traumatized by your abuser, but now there are 156 other abusers that are listed in this report. And for me, I'm not a survivor, but I am a daughter of a survivor, and I can tell you that I watched my mother. I watched her say, oh my goodness, I can't believe that Father so-and-so, oh, Mary Beth, did you see on page so-and-so? She read the report, even though I encouraged her not to. She doesn't listen. But seeing that in black and white is a completely different ballgame for survivors. And while it was so important that this investigation was done into the Archdiocese of Baltimore to put us where we are today, for survivors, I can't imagine how internally it made them feel, in their heads it made them feel, but I know that the Attorney General was very sensitive in its approach to getting this report out and letting survivors know that it was coming out before it even hit the street. In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations, what I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth, we explore on this podcast. 
June's journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. I'd like to hear from... Go ahead, Gemma. I'm sorry. Kim, did you read the report? I did, Gemma. So, wait. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to ask you a question, but I want to hear from you. Mary Beth is much better at wording things than I am. And (laughs) I just have to be in full agreement with her about it being very traumatizing. I mean, each time, like from the keepers onto the report and then on to, you know, this past April knowing that all this was about to blow up. So go ahead. I have a comment, Kim. What you shared with us earlier about the emotions that you experienced, that you were embarrassed, that now your family was going to know, that's the intent of predators. And what you're doing tonight, do you have any idea how many people that are listening to you right now are thinking, If she can do it, I can too. And I hope you take that to heart, Kim, because this is empowering for so many people who have not had the courage or the support and are still holding it all inside. And Mm -hmm. I know talking with us tonight doesn't change what happened to you. But in your frank appraisal of your emotions, you've connected with every single survivor that's listening or their families, because the whole point to a predator's abuse of children is the grooming that they do in order to get you where they want you to be. And look at you. You just said earlier this happened when you were nine. And mm-hmm. you said you're 61? No, I just turned 63. Okay. So, Kim, who won? Did they win or did you win? You won. Okay. And everybody that's listening and everybody that knows you and knows what happened to you is mm-hmm. holding you up and putting their arms around you and supporting you because you're making a difference for other people. Thank you, Gemma. You made a difference for me, Kim, just in allowing me to talk to you the first time. You changed my life, Kim. You changed my life. And, you know, the very first time, I mean, and I know Kim pretty well now, after all the months of us communicating back and forth for various reasons. And I will say that the Attorney General's report, while it was traumatizing, and it is traumatizing for survivors, The positive that has come out of the attorney general's report that I'm hearing from survivors is they finally are able to understand that all these years they thought they were alone and they were the only ones. And this 400 and some page document has given them the support that they have needed to understand that they are not alone and that they have one because they're still here, which is why we call them survivors. Mm-hmm. And they can stand up and now be able to say, nope, 
I'm not holding this anymore. I'm going to give it back to the people, the institutions, the predators that should have owned this pain and suffering and everything else that's gone on in survivors' lives. And that is the big positive. There, I mean, there's a lot of positives that came out of the attorney general and their investigation. But the one big thing that I hear a lot is that survivors finally understand that they're not alone and they weren't alone while they felt like they were alone. And they probably felt like they were alone up until April when this report came out and maybe still feel like they're alone. The strength to be able to report to Richard Wolf now, because trust me, he still wants to hear. He mm-hmm. still wants to talk to survivors and get more information on what took place. And also with the Child Victims Act being passed, it has also given the survivors the strength knowing that they're not alone, but also the strength because they're not alone to be able to stand up and say, you're not going to win. You haven't won. And with the Child's Victim Act being passed, now I'm going to hopefully be able to get some accountability that you so deserve. Before I ask you both about your feelings about the bankruptcy process that the archdiocese is going through, I just wanted to add into this conversation just a small little piece about maybe it was me being naive of being a young person from Indiana But I thought before the attorney general was going to release the report, I thought that the report was going to consist of just individual pieces of this priest was accused of abuse, and then this priest was accused of abuse. But then when I read through the report, you have individual stories of these abusers. And I think for me, that's what makes it so difficult to read. Because not only do you read about this abuse, it also shares the story about the internal communication that was happening. The proof that these priests and the archdiocese and the people in charge knew about it and were helping conceal it. And so even when you get a few pages in, just your emotions just become overwhelming. I remember just not being able to get very far into the report in each sitting. And I can't imagine going through there trying to read about your abuser or, you know, in Mary Beth's case, your mom's abuser. And then seeing that and then seeing, oh, there was a memo or, you know, there were internal communications, like just the emotions I just want to just say to both of you that I think that everyone listening will feel for you. Yeah, on the other side of the coin, and I don't mean to sound cruel about this, but the reality is that the living perpetrators, they don't care. They're afraid of going to jail, but they don't have emotions. They're psychopaths, sociopaths, narcissists. And right now, I don't really think the archbishop cares. They're caring about money. They're caring about what they're going to have to give up or lose or who's going to find out something about them. But they're the survivor's emotions of shame, courage, whatever it might be, 
are not matched by shame or courage on the other side. If they were, this would not have been hidden since 1940. The archdiocesan leaders, they could have been heroes. They could have been heroes, and they are cowards, and they continue to be. They deny, they hide, they get switched around, just like the abusers were, and your emotions are not matched by theirs because you had this done to you, and you won, and they don't care. The ones that are living are trying to figure out how to get out of town and how to avoid ending up in jail. And that's the truth of it, which makes those of us who are advocates or survivors, it makes it that much harder to stomach. And I don't mean to be such a realist, but that really is, they don't feel sorry for any of us. They don't feel sorry for you. They're saying, yeah, we're sorry for this, but they don't care. It's over for them. They're just trying to get through it with minimal damage. And you know what? That ain't going to happen because we're about ready to do major damage, right? That's not a threat to anybody, but we're not going away. So I know, Shane, you wanted to ask Mary Beth and Tim about how the bankruptcy has impacted them. Yeah. And I also wanted to just add real quick, Gemma, that I think that we know what side the business of the archdiocese is on when before the report comes out, they'll preach about transparency. And then we find out that they're the ones who are the people who will try to prevent transparency from coming out. But yes, why don't we start with Kim? Kim, I wonder if you could just talk to me a little bit about your thoughts behind the Archdiocese filing for bankruptcy. In 2016, when I actually realized what was going on one late night, and then about a year later, I received a call from Gemma about the keepers. I never thought anything was going to come to light with any of this. I thought what I was getting from Gemma was just validating what I had found out prior, you know, a year ago. But then when all of this with the report started coming out, I began feeling like if this really happens, not that I really anticipated anything happening with the archdiocese. I kind of thought they had realized what had happened and they were going to, I guess, compensate the victims. But then when I was at Mr. Jenner's office and we had a visit there, and when I got home that day, about two hours later, he called me to let me know that they went ahead and filed bankruptcy, which is what they were anticipating. And for me, I felt like when Maskell, he was shifted from, I think it was the Boy Scouts, something with all boys, and they moved him to Keogh because he liked boys, and this was an all-girls school. And then I became a victim of his. And yet it was okay for the archdiocese to move them around, pay to move them, like these little hospitals that are like retreats and things like that for healing. And then now they want to keep their money for them. What was going on with Maskell 
and his brother and the men that he was bringing in to abuse the victims. I mean, that was all okay, but now they want to not really keep it quiet. It's gotten out there. And then when I saw it in black and white, now they have all these things that are precious to them. I don't know what meaning they have. It's like they need value. They need, I guess, to be the, you know, they're the first archdiocese. And I'm sure financially they're very well off. I just don't understand why they just couldn't decide to either do a fund or pay out to the victims that came forward and just, in a sense, apologize for what they let happen to me, to Mary Beth's mother, and every other victim. I mean, some of the stories are just sick, very sad. Mary Beth, I'm going to ask you the same question. When the Archdiocese started talking about bankruptcy, when was the first time you kind of knew that that was a possibility, and what are your thoughts around it? On the legal end of this, we were prepared to file cases October the 1st when the Child's Victim Act would go into effect. October the 1st was a Sunday, which means every court in Maryland except for Baltimore City, which ironically is where most of the cases would have been filed, Baltimore City Circuit Court is the only court in Maryland that doesn't have electronic filing. So you physically have to take a filing down to the courthouse and get it date stamped and so on and so forth. So nothing could be filed with Baltimore City Circuit Court until October the 2nd, even though the Child's Victim Act went into effect on October the 1st. Our office was preparing and had been preparing our cases to be filed, some electronically. We were going to file some, or we had some prepared to be filed electronically in other counties. And then we had some that were going to be hand taken to uh, the circuit court one that Monday. I would say two weeks, maybe three prior to that date, there was, I'll say, word on the street that the archdiocese was talking about bankruptcy. And on the legal end, I mean, we knew that it was a possibility that they were going to play that card, as I say it. I don't remember the date of the email that I got from the archdiocese from Lori. I am on the archdiocese listserv because of my children being in the archdiocese schools. And we got a letter on a Sunday night. I think it was maybe the week before October 1st. I'm not 100% sure from the arch from Lori stating that they were talking about thinking about and consulting with their attorneys about the possibility of having to file bankruptcy. And ultimately, what I got from that letter, and I immediately passed it on to Mr. Jenner and our team because my immediate thought was, here we go again. So we're going to blame the survivors for 
them coming forward and filing claims under the new Child Victims Act that would ultimately give them some accountability because money is not going to change what happened to anybody and it's not going to make anything different for any survivor, but it's going to give them the accountability and for the archdiocese, you know, you, what do you say? You hit him in the pocket and that's where it hurts. Okay. So we get this email and my immediate thought was, oh, so now we're going to blame survivors. The archdiocese is going to have to think about filing bankruptcy because survivors are coming forward. Friday the 29th at 1.10 in the afternoon, we got word that the archdiocese had filed for bankruptcy. Now, my take on it as a paralegal and as a daughter of a survivor was, how in the world do you file bankruptcy when you don't even know what's being filed against you? Or is it that you do know what's going to be filed against you? Because the law doesn't go into effect until two days from when they filed for bankruptcy. So we have a bankruptcy being filed based on potential claims that are going to be filed against the archdiocese, is how I was viewing it. And to me, it said, we know that there are hundreds, maybe thousands of claims that could potentially be brought against us. So we better do this or we're going to be screwed. Now, ironically, if you look in the court's records in Maryland, there weren't hundreds of claims that were filed. Because honestly, a lot of the survivors that I've talked to weren't 100% ready to file civil claims. Because civil claims means either A, your name's out there in a public record, B, you've got to go through the re-traumatization of living what happened to you all over again in front of people, in front of a jury, being deposed, being berated by defense counsel potentially in a deposition. Civil litigation isn't just, oh, let's file a lawsuit and archdiocese, you can give me money. That's not how it works. So while I'm sure there were going to be a lot of cases filed against them, in I read it as they knew potentially how many cases were going to be filed against them because they've always known that this abuse was out there. So to me, it was, let's throw it back on the survivors that, oh, because you're going to file a claim against us, for the abuse that we we had and should have protected you as a child. And now there is an opportunity in the civil litigation world for you to file a claim. And uh, what are we going to do now? We gave survivors a voice when this Child's Victim Act was passed, finally. And then, once again, the archdiocese says, oh, no, mm -mm. we're going to take away your voice again, and we're going to file bankruptcy so everything is stayed and nobody can file a claim against us in civil court, 
you can file it in bankruptcy court, but not in civil court. Completely different thing. And I'm not a bankruptcy paralegal, so I can't speak on that. But that's that's how I saw it on a legal end, and that's how I saw it on a personal end. Was once again the Archdiocese of Baltimore said, "Oh no, you're not going to do this. We're in control, and we're going to file bankruptcy so that." We're in control of how things are going to be handled. And that, I mean, that's just from speaking to survivors and just really being passionate and an advocate for survivors because they were given the opportunity finally to get some accountability. And then once again, the archdiocese took their control again. Gemma, my question for you would be the same question. What did you think when the church filed for the bankruptcy? be honest with you, I was devastated because I read everything in the newspaper and not all of it's accurate, but I follow certain reporters and they are pretty good at reporting what's going on. And my feeling was that this negated everything we had worked for, but I'm not sure that that's true. And I guess what I would want to know from Mary Beth is why now should somebody seek legal assistance? And why now should somebody file a lawsuit? Is there any point in doing that? And is there a deadline? So I can answer part of that. The part I can tell you is absolutely any survivor that is of clergy abuse by the Archdiocese of Baltimore needs to seek legal representation so that claims can be filed in the United States Bankruptcy Court in Baltimore. Now, it is a completely different process. There aren't trials, there aren't juries, there aren't depositions. It's not a civil litigation. It is a bankruptcy proceeding. And the bankruptcy proceeding allows survivors to still file claims against the Archdiocese of Baltimore and still be compensated, but in a different format. We don't know currently what the deadline will be for those claims to have to be filed, but what I will say is we anticipate that it will be sooner than later. And once that time bar is out there, let's say it's March 30th. I'm making updates. I don't know. But let's say it's March 30th. If you, as a survivor, have not made a claim in the United States Bankruptcy Court against the Archdiocese of Baltimore, you will be forever barred from filing a claim. Whether it be civil, there will be no civil claims or even in bankruptcy. There will be no more bankruptcy claims that can be filed once that date is given. And I do not know what that date is, but the claims can be made and need to be made. Legal representation is needed because it's not a simple form that you can fill out and send into the court and everything's all taken care of. My firm is actually working very diligently right now on working up claim forms so that we can get them filed prior to whatever the date is that gets set. But yes, every survivor 
needs to consult with an attorney and get their claims filed. It's important because once that bar date hits, then we won't have the ability to get any accountability, monetary settlements, whatever we want to call them in bankruptcy court. But it's very, very important to consult with an attorney and so that you can understand what exactly will take place by filing a claim with the bankruptcy court against the archdiocese. Because once that bar date hits, we're done. I just want to ask something real quickly, and this is for a select group listening. Am I correct that if a perpetrator is living and a survivor has proof that that perpetrator committed a capital crime against them, rape, is it possible to file criminal charges against that person? Because I know the only way to solve a cold case, I did learn this, is eyewitness, a confession, or DNA. And so if an individual, man or woman, has evidence, probably DNA, that that capital crime was committed against them, then they have grounds to file criminal charges against that perpetrator. Is that correct? That is correct. There's no statute of limitations on capital crimes. There's absolutely no statute of limitation on a criminal act. And I guess, realistically, I'm thinking about, I know there are women out there who have children whose fathers are clergy members, and those women were raped, and they had a child. And if their perpetrator is living, a paternity test would prove that, and they could take that person to court on criminal charges, correct? Shane and Mary Beth, do you agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I absolutely would encourage, we don't, you know, I I don't, in 27 years of my career, I've never done criminal, but I would, there is no statute of limitations in the criminal world, and it needs to be reported and there needs to be movement on a an investigation. You have every right in the United States of America that if you've had a crime committed against you to report that crime and have that crime investigated. And I will say, I'm going to get the name wrong, Gemma, and you're going to have to help me, but Kurt Wolfgang, who works very closely with our office, his center, Maryland, Crime Victims Resource Center. They are amazing. And if you have any questions or concerns or just need information, they are a plethora of information and help and compassion. And yeah, we'll invite him to a, an episode with us. Yeah, he's amazing. He their, okay. their center is absolutely amazing. But yes, in Maryland, in the United States, there is no statute of limitations for a criminal act. Mary Beth, why would someone decide to try to press charges for a criminal act versus a civil charge? Civil litigation is a proceeding in which you are seeking recovery for personal injury damages. And it doesn't mean a broken arm or something to that degree. It can be 
you know, damages are damages and they're weighed in different ways in, in a civil action. So a civil action is when you are seeking a recovery for damages that you sustained as a result of the abuse, let's say. In a criminal proceeding, you're not seeking damages. You are pressing charges against a person that has committed a crime. And that person, if they are found guilty, if they are charged and then convicted, will be held to whatever the criminal statute is for that particular crime. We would hope in these cases it would be incarceration for the rest of their lives. In a civil litigation, you're seeking individual damages against either an institution or the individual and or the individual that committed the damages to you. But in a civil litigation, it's criminal, meaning you're pressing charges to get someone convicted of a crime. And for criminal cases, do you have to have a higher level of burden of proof? Mm-hmm. Yes, you do. So that might be a, a little bit more difficult for really old cases as well. It could be. The scales of justice are different in a criminal matter, which is why, you know, criminal cases from long ago are hard. But just because they're hard doesn't mean that they shouldn't happen. And now in Maryland, we have some amazing people that are in positions to assert charges and to prosecute these criminals. I will also say that along those lines, I was amazed from the report by all the things the attorney general was able to get his hands on in terms of like the internal memos and things from the archdiocese talking about how they knew of abusers. That was really amazing for me to see And hopefully that will give some survivors some, you know, relief that those documents could still be there if they reported their abuser back then. And the one thing I will say is that now in 2023, almost 2024, what I can say about our criminal justice system is that it's much, much different of who's in these positions now than it was Five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the archdiocese is no longer in control and the criminal proceedings and the prosecutors and the state's attorneys and the Maryland attorney general are for survivors. It's no longer the archdiocese is in control of everything. Survivors are in control and they have the support and they have the resources now in place with who we have sitting and who we've elected into these positions, some amazing people that are for survivors and will do what needs to happen to the best that they can to make sure that they get these criminals prosecuted. I saw that in the report, it talked about how they had proof of documentation, especially of them talking internally about this, of there at some point in time in Baltimore and in Maryland of the press having involvement with the archdiocese and the court system. So if survivors tried to, you know, go to the press or try to press charges, the archdiocese had people in those positions and they could just squash it. 
And they, you know, have documents showing that they were doing just that. They were just squashing it all. Like, how corrupt can you be? It's absolutely ridiculous. And even if you can look past and get through and stomach all the horrendous stories, you get to those points and you're just like, seriously, Maryland. Like the Archdiocese, come on. Kim, Mary Beth, I want to ask you both as we wrap up here, we want to turn this over to you. If there's any last-minute thoughts that you have, you have the floor here. People are listening. Do you have any advice for them if they're on the fence about reporting? Do you have anything that you would like to say? And I'll start with you, Kim. Okay. If there is someone or if there are people out there listening and they haven't come forth yet, I would highly recommend that you do. I think it'll be a big relief off of your chest. And I think you owe it to yourself and not to worry about what others think and take the archdiocese down. Mary Beth, how about you? Any last minute words for us? I'm just going to echo exactly what Kim said. It Now is the time. You're not alone. The Attorney General's report itself has brought about that for sure, that you are not alone. There are people that can support you. It's time. You have a voice. Speak to, you know, I'm not, I, I won't say call me, but you can call me and I will listen and I will do an, anything and absolutely everything possible to get you the accountability that you so deserve. It's time Unfortunately, the, you know, with the bankruptcy, it's time barred. So we don't know what that time bar is yet, but come forward, speak to someone, get your story as a claim so that the archdiocese, guess what? You can't tell us to sit down and shut up because we're going to stand up and yell. And if it means in bankruptcy court, so be it. But it's still time to get it done. And it's very, very important. And it it's amazing how many times I've heard survivors say, wow, I've never told my story. And now I've told my story. And I haven't had a nightmare since I've told my story. And we're here to listen, to help, to support. You're not alone. We're all in this to, I guess, I don't want to say take the archdiocese down, because that's not professionally what I'm supposed to say, but as a survivor of a daughter, let's take the archdiocese down because we don't have to take them down, but we have to hold them accountable. And Gemma, do you want to say anything? Yes. You know, I always have something to say. Aren't I lucky to have these three people in my life? And I just love you guys. And I want to thank you both and Shane for this show this evening. And I want to tell our listeners that they do not want to miss the next episode because we are going to be talking about the Jesuit intern and one of the women who has alleged inappropriate behavior by him is going to be our guest. So we're going to post the article that was in the Baltimore Banner about Mr. Jerry Koob. So you can read it, and we're going to say as much as we are permitted to without breaking confidentialities, but we are going to be 
visited by one of those women who is absolutely, absolutely outraged at his response and his denials. And you will meet her on the next episode of Foul Play. Love you guys. Thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.